Spectrums next. Welcome to Spectrum, the science and technology show on KALX Berkeley, a bi-weekly 30-minute program bringing you interviews featuring Bay Area scientists and technologists, as well as a calendar of local events and news. Good afternoon. My name is Brad Swift. On today's show, Rick Karneski and I interview Mitch Altman. Mitch is an inventor and self-described hacker. He co-founded the company Threeware and is now the president and CTO of Cornfield Electronics. We're talking to him about NoiseBridge, the San Francisco hackerspace that he co-founded, as well as some of his many inventions. These include the TV Be Gone, a remote that turns off most TVs, and his recently successful Kickstarter project, the NeuroDreamer Sleep Mask. Mitch Altman, welcome to Spectrum. Thanks. Would you mind telling us sort of that career path? How I got to sitting here today? Uh, I've been a geek all my life. You know, I, I dreamed about this stuff when I was a little kid. I actually did. Uh, I remember having this recurring dream where I saw the inside of my mom's radio, which uh, they were tubes. I didn't know what tubes were, though. They were just glowing. They looked cool. And I dreamed about pushing it off the counter to see what was in it. And in my dreams, I actually did it. But in real life, I was always too timid. But I really wanted to see what was inside, and eventually I started taking apart my parents' things, and somehow they let me, and eventually I learned to put them back together, making my own things from scratch. It's been fun. In electronics, I always want to know what, how things work. I mean, that's, that's how, what makes us geeks tick, you know? But the thing that fascinated me the most was electronics. So I started playing with wires and alligator clips and putting forks into electrical outlets and having my parents scrape me off the ceiling and learning from my mistakes, learning and growing. Eventually I was making my own intercoms between my brother's bunk bed and mine below him in high school making an electronic bong. And uh, that was one of the things that actually got me talking to other kids (laughs) rather than just being a lone geek. So uh, inventing, making things, it's been part of my life since I can remember thinking. But you've also had this entrepreneurial spirit as well, I suppose. Yeah, and I'm not really sure where that came from. Maybe uh, from my parents. My father was an architect. You know, and I see a lot of what I do as art, you know, expressing ourselves truthfully and doing things in a way that give other people an opportunity to think about themselves and the world around them. And my father did his art, uh, architecture, and it made him a living. Without really being conscious of it, that's probably the path that I followed. I actually quit the job that I had created for myself, which was consulting in electronics for usually small companies. But I quit that so I could explore ways of doing more of what I loved, and that's how I came across TV Be Gone, and I was lucky enough that it actually makes me a living. It's really cool to be able to make a living by doing what you love, making enough money, doing what you love, to keep doing what you love. I mean, that's my idea of success. Where does the inspiration come for your projects? Well, that's a good question. Where does inspiration come from? (laughs) You know, obviously, uh, other people can be inspiring random events in our lives, and people are great random elements in our lives. And if we relate to people um, and they throw something at us that really sticks in our craw and uh, nibbles away at us, uh, it's like sticking in there. Maybe it's subconscious. Eventually, it becomes an idea for a project that dreaming to come out. TV Be Gone, I got the idea sitting in a Chinese restaurant in 1993. 
talking with some friends, and we were there to talk to each other, not to watch TV, and yet there was a TV on, and we were watching the TV, and that was crazy. So we started talking about that, and then I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful if I could just turn off these horrible distractions everywhere I went? And instantly I knew I could because I'm a geek. Of course, it took me 10 years to get to a point in my life where I had time and energy to do it, and I'm glad I did. I had to make that time, though. You know, inspiration is really important. Ideas are really important, but they don't go anywhere unless you make the time to do something with them. And you just prioritize it because you're passionate about it, or how, how do you make sure that you actually finish something that you start? Oh, finishing what you start. Well, you know, I think that's overrated. I've done zillions of projects, as <laughs> have we all, that, we have, that I haven't finished. That's great, you know, and if I'm not motivated to finish it, that leaves time for doing something else. TV Be Gone, I think, is the first project in my entire life where I actually finished it f totally. And I had to if I was going to make it a product. You know, and, and uh, I don't think we've mentioned TV Be Gone, for people who don't know it, is a keychain that turns TVs off in public places. And it really does work. And I did it because I got rid of TV in my life at home. I am a TV addict. Uh, I watched it every waking moment of my life as an unhappy child, but I didn't have to keep doing it later in life, and I chose not to. But in public, no one chooses those things to be on. People don't leave their home to watch television, except maybe for sports bars or something, but I don't like bars and I don't like sports, so I don't go to those. But everywhere else... So I made it so I could turn them off, and other people wanted them. And then when their friends wanted them and friends of friends, that's when I decided I would make a bunch. So um, I started it like many projects, and it got on a roll unlike many projects. But I actually was so passionate about it continually, and I had so many people that kept asking me, when's that going to be done? That that probably helped me follow through and actually finish it and get it to a point where it's a manufacturable product. You're listening to Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. Our guest is inventor Mitch Altman. And once you get something to that point, what's next? Do you tinker and invent more stuff, or do you spend time supporting TVB Gone? Or yeah, well, when you do what you love, all sorts of interesting things open up that you might notice where you wouldn't if you're consumed doing something that just exhausts you, like a job you know you don't like, that too many of us, unfortunately, on our planet are in that position. I have been working on many other projects along the way. I started getting into hacker conferences and maker fairs as a result of TV Be Gone. People invited me to these things, and I um, would give talks, which is kind of bizarre for me, a totally introverted geek, terrified of public speaking like so many other of us introverted geeks. But uh, it turned out I liked it. You it know. makes it easier to talk about something you love. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't like being pedantic. Uh, I like making things fun, and if other people relate, then maybe they'll learn something, maybe make a new choice in their life that serves them better. And I don't want to tell anyone else what to do. Well, sometimes I do, but I like uh, making it more fun for people to choose for themselves what's good for themselves. I found a place where at hacker conferences, at maker fairs, where I could teach doing what I really love, which is soldering and making cool things with electronics. 
And that led to me finding things to teach with. So I started making my own little kits for total beginners. And I started doing that by hacking other people's kits and then making my own. And that's been supplementing my income a little bit, but mostly it's been paying for me to be able to travel around the world and teach doing this, which I also love. That led to going to more hacker conferences and maker fairs and things related and going to hacker spaces that existed, but not too many back then. Back then was? 2007. Okay. The first maker fair was 2006, which led me to meet people who invited me to the first hacker conference also in 2006 that I went to, uh, Hope in New York every other year. And I've been actually helping organize those now, which is another thing I make time for. At one of these hacker conferences in Germany, put on by the Chaos Computer Club, who have been responsible for creating hackerspaces in Germany and then the world for over a quarter century now. Uh, but in 2007, it was about a quarter century of that, and they gave a presentation on how to start your own. And I was way inspired to come home and do that in my hometown. And with my friend Jake, we co-founded NoiseBridge. And instantly, we just put out the word and we got lots of way cool people to help. And with our ideas and their ideas, uh, it collected more people. And NoiseBridge was a, just a natural growth out of all of our enthusiasm and inspiration for having the energy and the high, really, of being at one of these hacker conferences where people do what they love, explore what they love, share and teach and learn from each other. Uh, but not just once a year. Uh, but every day, all night, all day, all year round. And, uh, wow, hundreds of us go through there every week. And it constantly amazes me how many cool people are doing cool things there now. And what kinds of things happen at NoiseBridge? It's very diverse. Uh, it's not just tech. You know, I teach soldering and uh, electronics, but... Circuit uh, hacking Mondays. Yeah, so every Monday uh, since 2007, I've been teaching how to solder. And I love doing that. I'm really good at it by now, too. Uh, and when I'm not in town, uh, I'm on the road, other people do it. On Wednesdays, there's a similar kind of thing for craft and art folks to get together, and that's called scow, sewing, crafting, or whatever. Also on Mondays is uh, people, there's someone who's teaching a class on how to do your own website. There's a Python language class. There's German language, human language class. There's a space exploration program. There's food classes. We have a full kitchen. We have a dark room. There's photography classes. 3D printing? Yeah, 3D printers. We got lots of those. And we got industrial sewing machines and lots of cool uh, electronics equipment as well as a machine shop and a laser cutter and a library. We've got classrooms. We've got event spaces. All this and more. And everything happens just because people think it would be cool to do and they, they do it and people help. And this is just one of about a thousand hackerspaces in the world now. It's another thing I love doing is going around helping people start these supportive communities, which are hackerspaces, for people to explore and do what they love and hopefully even make a living out of it so they can do what they enjoy and find fulfillment in their lives. You know, now there's only a thousand in the world. What will the world be like when there's a million? Uh, more opportunities for people to do way more cool things. Earlier guests on our show did talk about the Makerspace Project, of which you're a fairly vocal critic. So can you say why you're a critic? I wouldn't say I'm a critic. I love Maker Faire and I love Make Magazine. They've created opportunities for so many people and my life has been changed for the positive by it and so is so many other people and it will continue to be that kind of positive role model for others as well. 
They recently sought and received a grant for $10 million from DARPA, which is an arm, uh, a research arm of the U.S. military. Their goal is to help create new technology for the U.S. military. That's their stated goal. So they have a bunch of grants now available. Most of them are because they see the U.S. education system as horribly flawed, as do I. People in the U.S. military see that just as clearly as many of us do. And making grants for hands-on learning is a way to give more people opportunity to at least have a start in becoming high-quality engineers, which they need to further the goals of their organizations, which is, in my view, simply put, to hurt and kill people. Of course, that's my personal view. You know, other people will see it differently. What I would love to see happen is for people to explore and continually reevaluate what it means to them to receive funding from organizations or people whose goals don't align with your own because there's consequences. So anything we do, there's consequences. There's pluses and minuses for everything. When you accept funds from sources that have goals that don't align with your own, of course, you're helping your goals because you have funding to do so. But you're also helping the goals of the funding source, which don't align with your own. How do you actually weigh the pluses and minuses in that way? It's not easy. But for me, after struggling with it for months, I can't feel good about associating myself with helping the goals of DARPA. Even though good things come from what DARPA has done, I would rather put my energy directly into doing things that I believe are helping people rather than helping the goals of an organization that does things that I find, well, I'll use the word reprehensible. So I'm not trying to talk anyone into not associating with Maker Fair or Make Magazine. I still respect many of the people at Make and uh, Maker Fair a great deal. I think they'll do great things. I just can't feel good about helping myself. And I really would hope that people do consider the funding sources because it does change what you'll do, maybe consciously, maybe subconsciously. So what are you willing to do that you might not have done to make it more likely to get funding? renewed funding. What are they going to stop doing that they might have done because it doesn't look so good to the funding source? I, I see these as very, very much related. It's really important to explore these things before making a, a conscious choice about whether to accept these funding sources. Maybe it's worth it. Maybe it isn't. It's up to each and every individual. I need a couple points of clarification just to make sure we got everything right. Yeah. Um, so, did DARPA funding at all go to MakerFair, to your knowledge? Uh, or is it just the, sort of the association with some of the other projects that those same people are doing? Well, before making my choice, I talked to the person who started MakerFair and Make Magazine, uh, Dale Doherty, and he's a great guy. We've done lots of cool things through the years together. And my main goal was to explore the possibility of helping with MakerFair without being associated with DARPA funding. And the funding that they got is for a program they call Mentor Program, uh, but that's intertwined with Make and Maker Fair. So there's no way to dissociate the funding. This is Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. 
Our guest is Mitch Altman, the co-founder of the hackerspace NoiseBridge. I also see this theme of wanting to help people. So, for instance, you host these depression and geek meetups. Life isn't all totally wonderful. Life is full of things that are amazingly wonderful and rapturous and uh, blissful, and it's full of things that totally suck. Uh, and anything in between, up, down, and all around. And any given life, no matter how wonderful your life is, uh, there's ups and downs. And I um, started off my life as a totally depressed geek. And um, I was brutally bullied. I was, you know, introverted geeks when I was a little kid did not fare well. And not only that, but uh, I was an am queer, and little kids take any difference, big and small, and they brutalize people for it. Uh, life was horrible for me, and my parents were terrible parents. Lucky for me, they turned out to be cool people as adults for me when I was an adult. And uh, no matter what, childhood can be rough for people, and there's unhealed stuff, and we carry all of that with us if we survive into adulthood, and here we all are as adults living our lives, hopefully exploring and doing what we love with the help of uh, our supportive communities, including hackerspaces. But still, there's a huge amount of depression in geek communities. Uh, last November, a friend of mine killed himself. It was the first time in my life where I felt close to someone who uh, killed themselves. And uh, it's rough. It really, really sucks. Uh, there's nothing like it. And still, uh, by this time in my life, I try to see opportunity in anything to help not only myself but other people. It's part of my healing process. So I wrote up a very personal blog post on the NoiseBridge blog site about my feelings and hundred or more people responded. It was overwhelming, and uh, it really showed me that way more people are dealing with depression than I could imagine. And, and my friend, I had no clue he was depressed. And I'm very sensitive to it. He hit it so well. And I hit it well when I was uh, the first half of my life living with depression. But yeah, a lot of us in the geek world and in our planet are suffering with depression. So after all these responses, I thought, you know, maybe we could have a meetup where we can talk about this and openly. And if we talk about this openly as a community, maybe, maybe someone will reach out for help rather than harm themselves. And maybe someone will live another night. And in any case, these geek and depression meetups that I started are now happening in various cities around the world and hopefully more as, as we become more open about this. Because, you know, I think we really can benefit, all of us, each of us, and as a community, if everyone is able to be totally open about all of who we are and not have to be shameful or secretive about something, you know, we can be open about everything but this. And then soon we're closing off huge parts of our lives and we have this part we can't even explore ourselves because we can't talk about it to anyone. We're not open about it with ourselves and not just about being queer or whatever, but also being depressed. Uh, feeling suicidal has a lot of shame associated with it. And a lot of people feel, unfortunately, sadly, tragically, that the easiest way out is killing themselves rather than just asking for help. And that's just so awful and unnecessary. So uh, there are geek and depression meetups now that happen in San Francisco. I would like to see more happen elsewhere. 
big or small, whatever. And I'm always available if, if anyone wants to contact me for any reason. Project helps how to start a company uh, if you're depressed, if you want someone to talk you into quitting a job you don't like, anything. I'm totally willing to communicate anytime. Just please email me, uh, mitch at cornfieldelectronics.com. Our guest today on Spectrum is Mitch Altman, inventor and hackerspace activist. This is KALX Berkeley. You had uh, mentioned the sort of lackluster state of science, technology, engineering, math education, or education in general. Do you see other possible solutions to bringing that up? Yes. This is one of the huge reasons why I started NoiseBridge and why I help other hackerspaces start. These are places where education happens in a very real, wonderful way. Uh, NoiseBridge is a 501c3 public benefit corporation in the state of California, but it's not your traditional kind of education organization. We teach and learn and share through hands-on, whether it's with computers, whether it's in a kitchen, a sewing machine, a soldering iron, a machine shop, whether it's through exploring biology and growing mushrooms or using a laser cutter or exploring space. It's all about learning and teaching and sharing. People can try stuff. If they know they love something, they can explore it more. They can teach it. It's really fantastic. And this is an opportunity for some people to actually learn what they want to learn to live lives that they want to live. I wish the U.S. education system were more that way. It is very unfortunate that the only schools, well, most of the schools that actually provide that opportunity are very expensive private schools in our country. And there are fortunately some exceptions. I was just uh, teaching some kids over at the Met West School in Oakland who are providing hands-on learning for their kids. And it's public. It's really cool that, that that exists. But it's only, I think, 165 kids are allowed there. I would love to see more of that. So hackerspaces around the world are providing these opportunities right now it's very few opportunities compared to what we need. There's only a 1,000 hackerspaces in the world, and we need a million. And we'll get there uh, because hackerspaces are incredibly cool. People are spontaneously creating them. There's all sorts of ways we can create these niches within which we can provide ourselves the services that our governments are not providing us. Hackerspaces just happen to be a really wonderful way near and dear to my heart. And Mitch, are, are hackerspaces able to reach out to younger students, populations that are stuck in those schools that you were talking about that aren't doing any of this hands-on stuff? Yeah, well, it's already, uh, it's already there. I mean, NoiseBridge has always been welcoming to people of all ages. And most hackerspaces are, although some are afraid of liability issues uh, and they only have 18 and over, which I think is absurd. Yeah, there's, there's no age limit for learning. None. If we don't have it beaten out of us, that is. I'm not doing hackerspaces to get rid of schools. I would love schools to become places where people can actually learn. But kids can have these often totally free, and at NoiseBridge it's always free, opportunities as an alternative. During lunch or before or after school, they can come to NoiseBridge over weekends uh, with or without their parents. People are always welcome to come. Hopefully, as there are more and more hackerspaces, there will be more opportunities for these kids. There are hackerspaces in the East Bay. There's 
Ace Monster Toys. There's one that's just forming now called Pseudo Room, S-U-D-O Room. And there's Mothership Hacker Moms, which is primarily for moms who are hackers. And there's also a LOL space. I can't remember what the acronym stands for, unfortunately, but they're for liberating prim- ourselves locally. There you go, liberating ourselves locally. They're a bunch of cool people primarily for uh, hackers of color of various sorts. And we need more. There's actually people just now starting to talk about another hackerspace in San Francisco. What I would love to see is a hackerspace in every neighborhood of San Francisco, every neighborhood of every city around the country. We need a million of these things. Well, Mitch, thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's been great being here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. A regular feature of Spectrum is to mention a few of the science and technology events happening locally over the next two weeks. Rick Karneski and Lisa Katowicz, join me for the calendar. The next Science at Cal lecture will be given at 11 a.m. on August the 18th in Genetics and Plant Biology, Room 100. The lecture will be given by Dr. Anton Tremsen and will be titled, Can One See a Flower Through a Granite Wall? Amazing Capabilities of Neutron Imaging. The detection technology developed for NASA astrophysical missions at UC Berkeley Space Science Lab has been successfully extended to such diverse areas as synchrotron instrumentation, biomedical imaging, ground-based astronomy, and neutron microtomography. Dr. Tremson will talk about his experience with neutron imaging and how its use will find new applications. He got his Ph.D. in applied physics in 1992 at the Russian Academy of Sciences and was then a British Royal Society Fellow at the University of Leicester and joined the Space Sciences Lab at UC Berkeley in 1996, where he is currently a research associate. On Saturday, August 18th, the Exploratorium at 3601 Lyon Street at the Palace of Fine Arts in San Francisco is celebrating founder Frank Oppenheimer's 100th birthday. Standard admission is $25, but college students, seniors, teachers, persons with disabilities, and youths aged 6 to 17 pay only $19. Members and children 5 and under are free. During regular museum hours of 10 a.m. to 5 p.m., visitors can take part in a variety of events and activities honoring Frank. At the Explorables table from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m., you can make a spinning top, one of Frank's favorite DIY projects. Throughout the day in the Mind Theater, you can see a series of Exploratorium home movies, featuring the early days of the museum, as well as footage of Frank engaging with visitors and staff. The day's events will also feature a Frank-themed presentation in the McBean Theater and screenings of some of his favorite films from the museum's Cinema Arts Archives, including the Eames classic, Powers of Ten. There will also be birthday cake. Exploratorium members can go to a special celebration from 6 to 9 p.m. For more information, visit exploratorium.edu. Now news with Rick Karneski and Lisa Katowicz. The Berkeley Earth Surface Temperature Project reports that the average temperature of the Earth's land has risen by 2.5 Fahrenheit over the past 250 years, including an increase of 1.5 degrees over the most recent 50 years. The good match between the new temperature record and historical carbon dioxide records suggest that the most straightforward explanation for this warming is human greenhouse gas emissions. Five times more station records were used than in previous analyses, and a new statistical approach allowed Berkeley Earth to go about 100 years farther back in time than previous studies, allowing the team to conclude that the contribution of solar activity to global warming is negligible. 
Five scientific papers, including the raw data, are available online at berkeleyearth.org. Elizabeth Mueller, co-founder and executive director of Berkeley Earth, says that one of our goals at Berkeley Earth is complete transparency. We believe that everyone should be able to access raw climate data and do their own analysis. Mueller was a guest on Spectrum, and her interview is available on iTunes University. Science Daily reports that UCLA researchers found that older adults who regularly used a brain fitness program played on a computer demonstrated significantly improved memory and language skills. The team studied 59 participants with an average age of 84, recruited from local retirement communities in Southern California. The volunteers were split into two groups. The first group used a brain fitness program for an average of 73 and a half 20-minute sessions across a six-month period, while a second group used it less than 45 times during that same period. Researchers found that the first group demonstrated significantly higher improvement in memory and language skills compared to the second group. The study's findings add to the field exploring whether such brain fitness tools may help improve language and memory and may ultimately help protect individuals from the cognitive decline associated with aging and Alzheimer's disease. Age-related memory decline affects approximately 40% of older adults and is characterized by self-perception of memory loss and decline in memory performance. Previous studies have shown that engaging in mental activities can help improve memory, but little research has been done to determine whether the numerous brain fitness games or memory training programs on the market are effective. This is one of the first studies to assess the cognitive effects of a computerized memory training program. The music heard during the show is by Lestana David from his album Folk and Acoustic, made available by a Creative Commons License 3.0 Attribution. Thank you for listening to Spectrum. If you have comments about the show, please send them to us via email. Our email address is spectrum.kalx at yahoo.com. Join us in two weeks at this same time. Thank you.